Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 256, uh, 3T, I believe it is. This is the lecture I would have been given uh, today, or, well, tomorrow, on March 17th. Uh, this is our first quarantine lecture. We're going to see how this goes. So, hello class and anybody else who might be listening to this one. Uh, we're going to finish off what I was going to be doing, so if you download the PowerPoint and go to slide 55, that's pretty much where we left off. So I'll give you a second to get there. Okay, so we're talking about the early New Deal, uh, what, the second of the big three concepts. What the first New Deal did was to end economic downturn. And we had just finished, well, I was talking about the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which paid farmers subsidies not to grow crops uh, as to artificially inflate the price. However, this impacted sharecroppers particularly negatively. Uh, basically, sharecroppers would ordinarily only get paid when they grew crops. Now they're not going to get the chance to do that. Now, a third of these, uh, of these programs is the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority. Now, the Tennessee River is a river uh, around Tennessee and northern Alabama that had a pretty bad problem of flooding. It flooded fairly regularly, and it was pretty devastating to the area. Uh, the area, this is classic Appalachia. It's, it's a fairly poor area. Um, it was also lagging behind in electricity. So FDR thought, you know what? We could kill two birds with one stone. If we dam the river, if we dam the TVA... Sorry, if we dam the Tennessee River, we would be able to control its flooding, and we can make sure that it doesn't flood. Likewise, dams can provide hydroelectricity. This can provide free or low-cost electricity to the residents of the area. Now, this happens, and it's very successful. Uh, it's, it's one of the crowning achievements. A TVA dam, well, the TVA still is an authority in parts of Tennessee and northern Alabama. Um... It, it seems a very good program. It provides electricity to an area that otherwise probably wouldn't have ever gotten it because of how remote it was and just how often it flooded. Uh, this is seen as very good. Uh, uh, oh, a, a fun little side effect of the TVA, if any of y'all have ever gone whitewater rafting or the Ecovier stuff, it actually pretty much invents modern whitewater rafting. The idea that you can turn a river on and off as need be, you could help control the rapids, uh, even if you go on the Ocoee and other rivers in Tennessee today, you will see that most of them are regulated by the TVA. So that's a fun little side effect of this. Now, a third thing that they did, uh, go over to the next slide, uh, slide 56, is uh, direct relief to individuals. This is something the federal government had hesitated to do before. Uh, generally, it did things for the states. It might do things for bigger businesses. Rarely before had the U.S. government, the federal government, given direct aid to an individual. Now, the first one is still under the idea of states. It gives grants to states to buy food for those who need it. This is something Herbert Hoover was unwilling to do. I remember last class, well, or class or two ago, where I showed those pictures of the milk trucks. Like, they're just dumping their truck because there's more money than the milk was worth to drive it to market. Um, FDR makes it so that the federal government gives grants to the states to help subsidize these farmers. This is seen as a very good step across the board. Nobody is really opposed to this one. 
This was something, like I said, that actually both sides of the aisle were asking Herbert Hoover to do. Um, it's good for the farmers because they have a pretty good customer, and it's good for the you know the people of the of the state, especially the children who are able to get food. Uh, this is something you st- still see nowadays with school lunches. Uh, a lot of the time, school lunches, the fresh vegetables and fruits come from local farmers, and the federal government or state government subsidizes those farmers so they could give you the school lunch fairly cheap. Uh, whenever I was a kid, school lunch, I believe, was $1.15. Uh, that was quite subsidized because all the ingredients definitely cost more than $1.15. Uh, what's, yeah, you know what, uh, maybe, maybe email me or let me know what, how much your school lunch was back when you were in high school. Um, Last I heard, it was like two-something. Maybe it's closer to three, but still very subsidized. Now, another organization, if you go next, is the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. This is unique because this is actually giving people jobs. This gives jobs to young men to work on more naturalistic programs. Uh, The Civilian Conservation Corps, if you go over, click over, you'll see a picture of some of these young men. Uh, They are doing beautification projects, uh, making trails, making camps. It's, uh, they're taking young men uh, who are in prime working age, you know, out of high school between the ages of like 18 to like 25, 18 to 30, giving them a chance to go out and work in nature. Um, it's actually run by the Army. It could be even seen as a predecessor to the mobilization for World War II. Now, what's interesting about this is they're taking young men and they're paying them a salary, but they can't keep all of it. A lot of the times the Civilian Conservation Corps was set up so that they could keep, I believe it was like 25 or 50 cents of every dollar they earned, and the other half they have to give to their parents. Um, It's a way to give people money that's not just welfare. Uh, You're giving people money for work. Now this makes it so the government is the employer of last resort. The idea that if you don't have any other job, if you have no other prospects, the government will give you a job. Now, the Civilian Conservation Corps, like I said, uh, they build parks, they build trails. A lot of them are still in use today. Uh, Whenever I was a kid, I lived in Arkansas for a while, right next to a Civilian Conservation Corps camp. I remember it was not even a block away from the house I was living in with my parents and my siblings. It was a huge park. It was Civilian Conservation Corps. It was really neat. It was like this ginormous park in the middle of Little Rock that, um, that I went to fairly often whenever I was a child. So this is also seen as a pretty good program. Uh, if you go back, the next thing is the Federal Housing Authority, the FHA. Uh, it makes it easier, or even possible in some cases, for people to buy a house. Uh, the federal government is now getting into the giving loans for houses um, game. This is something the federal government is still in to this day. Uh, you may have heard of like uh, Sally Mae, Freddie Mac, things like that. They, uh, the federal government will help banks get mortgages. Uh, Mortgages are a very big investment. Uh, I know we talked in last class how none of y'all have mortgages, but one day you will. And mortgages generally last 15 to 30 years. It's a long-term investment. And it's usually a pretty solid investment. Uh, Land generally increases in value. And for banks, it's usually pretty stable. However, in this time period, particularly because of the Depression, but even before the Depression, you needed a lot of cash to get a mortgage. Uh, most mortgages weren't that long. Uh, the FHA has changed how long it takes to get mortgages, how long mortgages are given. 
Uh, the 30-year note becomes a little bit more common beforehand. You might have an 8, 10, uh, 15 euros pushing it before the FHA. But now the government is more willing to give long-term loans. Banks are okay with it because the federal government is guaranteeing this. Uh, so the banks are now giving loans again. This is good for businesses because there's a lot of businesses associated with homes. Uh, not just home building, but also you know home supplies, hardware, maintenance, lawnmower companies. Uh, if you're a homeowner, you're expected to you know keep all your own maintenance, and sometimes you can't do the maintenance yourself, so you have to help with other people. Now there is a caveat here because the FHA wants to make sure so these houses will retain their value and increase in value, so everybody earns money off this. That they have basic standards of living, uh, things like running water become a necessity now, uh, electricity. Uh, certain sizes, uh, bedrooms being a certain size, having to have a closet, things that previously the federal government weren't in before. So as a whole, prices got a little bit higher, but the houses got significantly nicer, uh, significantly more modern. A pre-FHA house versus a post-FHA house really, um, really has quite a difference. Now, there is some other more unsavory parts of the FHA. Uh, there's a little thing called redlining, which we'll talk about probably a little bit more when we talk about the African-American experience, but I do need to mention it. Uh, the FHA and other government agencies wanted to make sure that these loans would appreciate and grow in value. And so generally, they would divide a city into... Uh, different zones about what's a good place to give a mortgage, what areas you don't give a mortgage to. Mainly they're guessing which places are probably going to increase in value, what places are going to decrease. And by and large, this is done on racial lines. Generally, uh, poor African-American areas of cities are not given HOHA loans. Uh, the more affluent areas, which should be a little bit more wider, are. And this is something that is not just in the South, it's across the country. Now, this has a multiplying effect because the areas that were quote-unquote good in the green zones, they tended to get better. Um, property values rose, property taxes went up, schools got better, uh, infrastructure got better, more businesses would move in. The areas that aren't getting the FHA loads actually tend to get worse, and it tends to disproportionately hurt African Americans. But we'll talk about that more later when we talk about the African American experience with uh, the uh, Great Depression. So those are nine programs of a lot. Like I said, it's going to be alphabet soup for a while in this class. There's a lot of different programs. There are a lot more, but I think I gave you a pretty basic good outline. Now, the New Deal is popular, but it's not unsurprising that there is some opposition. If you scoot over the next slide, get to opposition to the New Deal. There are three main areas I want to talk about. Uh, the first one is probably the most important. It's the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court, one of their main um, jobs is to decide what is and isn't constitutional. And a lot of these New Deal programs, they're not exactly explicitly said in the Constitution. Uh, one of the earlier ones is the NRA, the National Recovery Act. The idea that the president can have meetings with uh, businesses and labor and have that be legally binding, uh, that is something that's very not constitutional, and the Supreme Court locked it down. They struck it down. Now, these justices that did this 
are mainly appointed by Republican nominees, uh, Republican presidents, I should say. They're mainly nominated by Republican presidents or appointed by Republican presidents. Because remember, FDR is the first uh, Democrat nominee in quite a while. It's been quite a while since we've had a, uh, a Democrat as president. So a lot of these justices who remember Supreme Court justices serve for life, they are Republican nominees. They tend to be a bit more strict constitutionalist. Now, FDR responds a little bit later on by claiming the Supreme Court is too small. He claims that the nine justices, you know, the U.S. has grown a lot since uh, 1776. Well, it's not 1776 when they made the Supreme Court, but whatever. You know, we, we've grown a lot since the time of Washington. We've grown a lot since the time of Jefferson. Uh, it needs to be bigger. We're a bigger country, but we still just have nine justices. We should get more justices. And so he claims basically some of the justices are too old. He says, you know, any justice over 70, we want to, we want to be able to add another justice. Uh, he wants to add up to six new Supreme Court justices. Now, pretty much this would give FDR a block. This would give him uh, pretty much, Supreme Court-wise, the ability to do pretty much anything he wants. And uh, everybody sees this as a naked political grab. Uh, Congress, even the Democratic Party, the Southern Democrats are like, yeah, FDR, you're, you're trying to add Supreme Court justices. You really can't do that. Um, it's, not a, it's not a good look for anybody. Uh, when FDR is, is later claimed to be a dictator, or that's a lot of criticism about it, a lot of it does have to go with this quote-unquote Supreme Court packing scheme. So the Supreme Court does not like the New Deal very much. Uh, there is some opposition to the New Deal from the right. This should not be too surprising. Republicans and Democrats generally have opposing views on stuff. Uh, they don't care for the New Deal very much. They believe it's un-American. Uh, Herbert Hoover, remember, he is still alive in this time period. He's not president. He starts talking out about this uh, New Deal as being bad for America. Not too many people listen to him, but other people do listen to the Republican Party. There's a lot of midterm elections wherever Republicans get a lot of seats. However, the general public does seem to like FDR in that. Also, business is generally opposed to the New Deal. Uh, generally, business is not really in favor of regulation for various reasons and also more federal oversight. Uh, most of your smaller businesses. Big business actually tends to like regulation because they're the only ones who can really achieve it or they're the ones who set the regulations. Now, one example, if you skip over, uh, is Father Coughlin. Father Coughlin is one of the people who goes over from the right, uh, who attacks FDR from the right. Now, he starts out as a regular, ordinary priest. He is an ordinary priest. Uh, he's his um, God, I don't, home base is the wrong term. Uh, his what is it? His home parish? Parish. That's a word. of course it's parish. Yeah. His home parish is right outside Detroit. And he starts out as a radio priest. He starts out just giving mass, not really talking too much about politics, if at all. Uh, mainly he just gives a mass. Um, but from his radio station in Detroit, he's able to reach about one-third of all Americans. And, um, you know, outside of Louisiana, Catholics aren't a majority of the Christians or religion in the United States, but there's still a very sizable percentage, and so it's having a lot of resonance. But 
as time goes on, he starts to get a little bit more political. He starts saying things that, you know what, maybe, maybe this FDR guy isn't the best. Uh, he says the New Deal is not the greatest. He says, you know, it's stopping Americans from depending on things like each other, or the church in particular. He says that he's, he's not claiming that FDR is against religion, but he claims that the government is doing a job which should be otherwise reserved for the church. You know, the church should be the one to take care of its members, provide food, and stuff like that. Uh, that's not too offensive to anybody. Nobody really uh, objects to that. He's parroting something that's been said in a lot of different places. But then he goes further. Then he starts criticizing FDR much more. He stops talking as much about religion. His show becomes more and more political. And actually, its outreach tends to go even further. Uh, he gets more popular. More radio stations start picking him up as he stops doing the religion stuff and starts doing more politics stuff. Now, this shouldn't be too surprising. Remember, uh, when he's talking about religion, he's just talking about Catholicism. But if he's talking about politics, well, that's a lot more the nation than are just Catholics. Now, he goes a bit further. He goes a bit further. He starts talking about the roots of the Great Depression. And he claims that it is caused by an international Jewish banking conspiracy. And that FDR is part of this conspiracy. And this, this too, is not that, uh, sadly, it's not that unusual in the U.S., uh, we'll talk about this more when we get into the Holocaust, but the U.S. has got a pretty lengthy history of being fairly anti-Semitic. Uh, Germany did not invent anti-Semitism. Uh, that's been around in the U.S. for quite a while, and Father Coughlin is no exception to this trend. Uh, very famously, another very famous uh, Michiganer, another famous Detroiter, um, Henry Ford. Henry Ford was super anti-Semitic. Like, even for the time period, they're like, man, this guy's anti-Semitic. He, uh, in his newspaper, he, he started publishing all these anti-Jewish articles, and he would let, tell anybody who would listen that uh, the Jews are not exactly good people. And so Father Coughlin is now talking a little bit more openly about he can, he can combat the menace that's going, you know, this conspiracy, which has FDR as part of its tentacles, he starts talking about making a third party, possibly running for president himself. He says that's going to be good for the country. Uh, it's starting to get a little bit more traction. And then he finally, finally loses his audience. He's finally taken off the air for going one step further. And some of y'all might have already guessed where this is going to. But, you know, Father Coughlin doesn't think too much about the Jews. And then he starts saying, you know, he's got a good, good idea about the Jews. That, that guy, Hitler, over in Germany. Uh, yeah, uh, people don't know about how bad the Holocaust is in this time period, but they know something not great is happening with the Jewish population over in uh, Germany. They know that Jews are being having their rights taken away by the Germans. And when Father Coughlin starts praising Hitler, uh, that pretty much ends everything. That ends everything, everything right there. So that does it for... Um, those from the right, if you go back, FDR is actually being attacked from the left as well. From the left, FDR is being attacked by members of the Democratic Party who say he doesn't go far enough. Probably king of this, oh, I see right there, the kingfish of this is one Huey Long from Louisiana. Now, he's been governor of Louisiana for quite a while. He gets a start in the 1920s. Uh, Louisiana, 
was doing awful, uh, even before the Great Depression. Louisiana probably had one of the worst wealth disparages in all of the U.S. A statistic I like saying, because it just shows how bad Louisiana was, was before uh, Huey Long became governor in the 20s, the white male literacy rate in Louisiana was around 20%, which, that's really bad, and there's only about 150 miles of paved road in the entire state, mostly around New Orleans, and like New Orleans to Baton Rouge. Most of the state did not have paved roads. That is, that is bad, y'all. That is bad. Uh, as governor of Louisiana, Huey Long claims to be very populist. Uh, he starts talking about taxing big businesses, taxing the oil companies, saying that they take more than their fair share. He claims to be a champion of the little guy. Uh, he is from Wynn, Wynn, well, Wynn Parish, Winfield, Louisiana, which is a little bit northeast of Natchitoches, kind of middle of Nowheresville. He's one of the first, um, one of the first governors, one of the first major Louisiana politicians not to be from around the Louisiana area, uh, New Orleans area, New Orleans area. Uh, we, we've definitely had other Louisiana governors from Louisiana. But he's the first one to really, you know, he, he, he's um, the white trash governor, almost. You know, he comes from a very poor family. Um, he, he goes to Tulane for like a semester for law school. He drops out, uh, takes the bar, passes the bar, becomes a lawyer, uh, becomes a railroad commissioner fairly early. I want to say he's like 23, 24. He's actually very young when he's doing all this stuff. Um, as governor of Louisiana, he does things like he builds a lot of roads and bridges. Uh, he has a free book program for students. Uh, before this time, in like high schools and middle schools, students had to pay for their books. That's something that uh, was kind of a barrier to entry for a lot of poor students. But now he's like, hey, we're going to give you textbooks. Uh, subsidies for food, for school lunches, building a lot of roads, a lot of bridges. Uh, he famously builds the bridge in Baton Rouge across the Mississippi River fairly low so that ocean-bound ships can't go uh, through it. They have to stop at the port, which makes Baton Rouge a fairly large port on the Mississippi River. Pretty much ocean-bound ships have to stop there. Now, Huey Long has his plan for the Great Depression. It's called the Share Our Wealth Plan, the Share Our Wealth Program. And basically, it is a it guarantees an income. Uh, he's kind of like the Andrew Yang or something of his time period. He says everybody in Louisiana and ultimately the world, because he starts out as governor. He later becomes senator for Louisiana, but he's still pretty much governor. Um, his his governor pick is pretty much a, a stuffed shirt who does pretty much whatever Huey Long asks. And so his plan is called the Share Our Wealth Plan, and it's something. That's kind of unique in politics. He is offering pretty much straight up a guaranteed income. And to pay for this income, he says that he is going to tax any wealth over $3 million at 100%. What I mean by 100% tax means you can have $3 million and that's it. After you know, $3 million and $1, that $1 is gone. And he claims that there are 8 million members of the Share Our Wealth Club around the, pro, around the country. He makes a song, every man a king, every man a king, or you can be a millionaire. I forget the rest of it. Uh, basically, the numbers do not work out. Remember, it is the Great Depression. There are not enough people with millions of dollars 
let alone enough to give everybody an income, uh, let alone enough of an income to provide, as he claims, quote, a chicken in every pot. The idea that, you know, you'll be able to eat meat with, uh, with Huey Long's plan. Still, it's very charismatic. It seems to have resonance. Uh, Huey Long is talking more about running for president um, as a Democrat, challenging, um, challenging Roosevelt. And this actually has a chance of really being something. You know, as we, as we approach the 36th election, it's looking like Huey Long might be a serious challenger for uh, FDR. Now, what ultimately happens to Huey Long? Well, um, well, well, you know what? It's my podcast. I can give you a little diatribe. Uh, Huey Long is also known for not being racist for the time, okay? He still says some stuff which is, you know... If you heard it now, you'd be like, huh, that guy's kind of, you know, racially dubious. Or, But at the time period, he's actually actively courting the black vote, uh, African-Americans in Louisiana who can vote, which is not a huge number, but still, he's not openly antagonistic towards African-Americans. Uh, he's kind of against the Klan and stuff like that, mainly because he's poor. And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm speaking for all poor people, black and white. But he's not opposed to, you know, using race when talking about his political opponents. One of which is a judge. There's a judge in Louisiana who doesn't think very much of Huey Long and has been criticizing him. And Huey Long has tried to get rid of this judge. He doesn't get rid of him because he doesn't have that power. He's senator, not governor. But he starts murmurs that the, the judge's background may not be lily white. Maybe the guy's got some coffee in his cream, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, maybe this judge might have some, uh, you know, he might be an octoroon, quadroon type of thing. Uh, baseless accusations, but it still has a little bit of resonance. Now, this judge has a son-in-law who is a doctor. And this doctor does not like this attacks against his father-in-law. And this doctor decides to take the law into his own hands. Not the law, but the personal offense. So one night, Huey Long is in Baton Rouge at the brand new state capitol. Oh, shoot, I forgot to mention. Uh, Huey Long built the new state capitol. Uh, he built it as a skyscraper. It was a big public works project for Louisiana. So they get a lot of money for contracts using federal money because it's a state, it's a government building. Um, it's one of two skyscraper capitals in the United States. The other one's in Nebraska. However, the Louisiana one is much taller. Um, it, it looks like a... <laughs> it faces south, not towards D.C., because I guess that's kind of an old Confederate thing. Uh, some say it looks like a giant middle finger. It, it could. Uh, others say it looks like um, other things, which we're not going to talk about. But he gets this belt. It's, a, it's his own, you know, it's kind of his crowning achievement. That and Tiger Stadium. He gets Tiger Stadium built by claiming it's going to be a dormitory. But it's a dormitory that just happens to have a football field in the middle of it. Uh, even to this day, you can see the old dorm rooms. You can see the windows of the old dorm rooms if you ever go to Tiger Stadium. But um, they were not really designed to be dorm rooms. <laughs> Anywho, so, um, if, uh, not FDR, Huey Long is in the legislature. He's, he's, he's taking a trip from D.C. to get some legislation passed. It's a long marathon session. It's very late. It's close to midnight. And uh, Huey Long also travels with his own bodyguards. He, he's convinced that, you know, he's a dangerous man. Maybe, maybe, you know, FDR will try to take him out or something. It's 1935, by the way, year before the uh, presidential election. And so as he's walking out of the legislature, there's a hallway between the House and the Senate. He's going around the back. And this doctor comes out and pulls out like a little teeny tiny pea shooter type gun. 
and takes aim at Huey Long, fires off a shot or two. Now, we don't know if this, if Huey Long got hit by this, per se. We don't know if that actually hit him, this doctor's little gun. It was a very small caliber gun, I can tell you that. However, Huey Long's bodyguards have, like, Tommy guns. They have uh, very strong weapons, and they get a little, little overzealous whenever they find out their boss has been shot at. And they start, like, plugging everything. The, the doctor is, like, hit a million times. Um, if you go to the, if you go to the state capitol, you can see where the bullet holes are in the walls still. When I was a kid, you could actually stick your finger in them, but, uh, now they're like, hey, you should, uh, they have, like, glass over it. They're like, you probably shouldn't stick your finger in bullet holes. But yeah, they definitely still have the bullet holes where you can see where, you know, Hugh Long was shot. Uh, it's more than likely his bodyguards that shoot Long a bunch of times, like, just inadvertently, like, in the chaos, because he gets hit a lot. Uh, he's taken to the hospital across the lake, Lady of the Lake Hospital in Baton Rouge. Uh, he lingers there for about a week, and then he dies. He is actually buried at the state capitol. If you go to the state capitol, you'll see his grave right in front of it. And so the death of Huey Long, that kind of ends his momentum. But Roosevelt realizes he's getting a lot of flack. He's getting a lot of um, attention here. And so in 1935, he introduces what he calls the Second New Deal. Now, the Second New Deal has a lot of different things, but I'm just going to focus on a couple different programs. As you're what you're going to see, it's more of a continuation of the first. He, his guiding philosophy is throw junk against the wall, see what sticks, and then keep it up. Uh, for instance, the TVA was so, so, so successful... He makes the REA, the Rural Electrification Act. Oh, yeah, go ahead a couple slides. Uh, it brings more electricity to farmers. It pretty much does the TVA, except across the entire country. Uh, it subsidizes power companies to bring power to rural areas. This makes things better for farmers. Uh, it's also good for business. Business in rural areas can increase. Uh, farmers can have more stuff. Uh, it's just really good to have electricity. Uh, it's just nice to have, really. And places where otherwise might not get it. So as I said, you know, the TVA was successful. They ramped this up. Likewise, the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. This is a continuation of things like the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps or some of these big public work projects. Uh, this provides more jobs for the unemployed. It goes on a spree of internal improvements. Uh, they start building all sorts of stuff. Bridges are popular. Uh, probably the most probably the most common is courthouses. Uh, if you go to a courthouse in pretty much anywhere in the United States, if it's an older-looking courthouse, I guarantee you it's a WPA building. You can go inside, you'll see the plaque. Um, back when I worked at LSU, my office was in Himes Hall. Himes Hall was 100% a WPA building. Because when you go in, you'll see a giant WPA plaque that says, hey, we built this for the WPA. Uh, there's other things, too, not just building. They start paying for things like art, uh, you know, writers. Uh, one of my favorite projects that come out of this is the slave recordings. Basically, they take recordings of slaves, of former slaves. So, you know, slavery had been gone for about, you know, 60 years by this point. But well, more than 60, good God, 70 years by this point. But they're actually recording these slave narratives. Basically, they're getting these slaves, people who were slaves. You saw some people in the United States who were born slaves and were children or young adults during the Civil War and recording them. Uh, this is a great resource. If you've never listened to them, I highly recommend it because you get some fascinating stories from people who were just 
legitimate slaves, and they just talk about their lives. Uh, there's art projects, a lot of things. You might, you might, if you go to an older government building, you might be, see some of these WPA murals, and they're just very representative of the time. They're very like common man, very labor centric. Pretty interesting stuff here. Uh, the big one though is this next one. This is this is probably the most popular of the No Deal programs. It's Social Security. Uh, Social Security is a guaranteed income. It's a guaranteed pension. For retired people and people otherwise not working. Uh, there was an issue where they're afraid that older folks would start working and be taking the jobs that younger folks might have. Um, Social Security tries to mitigate that. How Social Security basically works is if you're older or unable to work, uh, like uh, disabled or unemployed, you are given an income. It's not a huge income. It's just a income. And the way they get that Sure, some of y'all have been paid before. If you look at your paycheck, they're going to take some money out for Social Security. And the idea is, is basically, you know, a worker pays into Social Security their entire life. And then when they retire, once they reach a certain age, they can draw upon it. Basically, uh, they're waiting the current generation to pay back what they paid in. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your grandparents are on it. My, my mother-in-law is on Social Security. Now, it's not a huge pension. Uh, today, I believe it's about $800 a month. That's what my mother-in-law gets. But still, if you're, a, if you're a poor person, that's a lifesaver. That can mean the difference between life and death, literally. Uh, Social Security was criticized heavily for being too socialist. Uh, the idea that we're doing a guaranteed income or a guaranteed pension is something that the U.S. had not done before. Uh, most other nations had done it. Uh, Germany especially had done it since like its founding. But still, there is a lot of criticism of it initially. However, this becomes very unpopular. This is probably the most popular of the New Deal programs. It's known as the third rail of politics. Uh, touch it and you die. Um, even though nowadays they say that Social Security has become insolvent, you know, they're going to have to make major changes to the, to the amount that people are given or raise the Social Security taxes. Um, if you talk about getting rid of Social Security, though, and you're a politician, it will probably end your political career right then and there. Uh, nobody will ever win the presidency by saying, I promise, first thing I'm in office is I'm going to cut your social security. Uh, another one, this is kind of the aftermath of the NRA, is the National Labor Relations Board. This is how FDR tries to get around the failure of the NRA. Uh, this changes the government's relationship with unions. Uh, before this time, unions were not exactly fully... Uh, that's the, not recognized. Yeah, I recognize. Yeah, I recognize. They're not fully recognized by the federal government. They're not allowed to exist. They well, they are allowed to exist. They they have no legal standing. Uh, that's why you know they're they're kind of you know you could be fired for belonging to a union things like that. Uh, the National Labor Board changes that. It says that the government is now buddy buddy with labor, not necessarily with the business owner. This causes union membership to go through the roof, except in the South. We never have very high union membership in the South. Eh, just is. But in most places throughout the country, now that the federal government says, hey, unions have a right to exist, we're not going to bust a union, this makes union membership skyrocket. A lot more people join unions. Uh, wages go up a little bit. It's still the Great Depression. Things are a little bit better. Uh, a new group comes into being, the CIO. Um, the CIO is later merges with the AFL. The CIO is interesting because it is a union of unskilled workers. 
Most earlier unions are skilled workers, but now that the federal government has said, hey, all unions are okay, unions of unskilled workers become more common. Now, if we move on, next slide. Uh, the 1936 election comes out. I'm not even going to tell you who the Republican nominee is. It doesn't matter because FDR blows this one out of the water. Uh, this is this is this is FDR does amazing. On uh, his second term, he actually doesn't do all that much. That's very new. Uh, he this is when the Supreme Court packing does happen. It was when he tries to expand the Supreme Court, so he gets into a little bit of trouble there. Uh, I do need to mention the South is solidly Democrat still. However, there's more dissension. A lot of Southern congressmen don't like the precedent of the New Deal. They tend to be against big government in this time period, and they don't like how the federal government is expanding so much. Um, remember, uh, Congress is all about seniority, and a lot of these Southern congressmen have been there for eons. And they are not happy with Roosevelt. Now, Roosevelt is able to appease them, by making sure that a lot of Southern places get a lot of New Deal contracts. But still, that's not enough. Also, uh, Roosevelt is making more overtures towards African Americans. Now, as we're going to see, this is a very contentious relationship between Roosevelt and African Americans, but he's still trying. And a lot of Southern Democrats don't like this. They don't like how buddy-buddy Roosevelt is trying to become with African Americans. Now, another thing that happens in this time period is there is a recession. Uh, there is a recession, uh, not as bad as the Great Depression, but the economy does kind of go back a little bit more. And FDR is now using deficit spending. Uh, deficit spending in the government is when they spend more money than they make in taxes. This is something that didn't used to happen that often. Now it's the standard. Um, the country generally spends in deficit. And they make up the money by selling bonds and things like that. Still, FDR is spending in the deficit. However, even by 1936, it's pretty clear that there's going to be another world war. Uh, they're seeing that things are not that great. So the looming war seems more important than the New Deal. Still, two things happen that I do want you to know about, two programs. The first one is the federal housing projects. Um, the FHA was willing to help consumers buy homes. Now they're straight up making homes. They're making housing projects. This is the projects. A lot of times they are, it's low or moderate income housing. A lot of them are like big buildings, big apartment complexes. Sometimes they're, you know, section, well, they don't have section eight yet, but it's just housing projects. It's the first time the federal government is doing housing projects, trying to guarantee that people have a place to live. Uh, it also creates the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, I'm not going to tell you what all it does. The main thing I want you to know about it is that it creates the federal minimum wage. The idea that this is the absolute minimum you can get paid. Before this time, there was no minimum wage. So the basic characteristics of the New Deal. All right. Uh, first of all, it's a new... Next slide, by the way. It's a new role for organized labor. Uh, before this time, unions were not officially recognized by the U.S. federal government. Uh, they kind of existed at the pleasure of the owners to put up with them, but you could be fired by joining a union. Now, thanks to this changing changes, unions are very much part of the government, part of organized labor, and particularly part of the Democratic Party. Um, unions tend to vote Democrat, and this is where it comes about. Second, the government is now ensuring basic standards and things like housing and things like minimum wage. The federal government is now saying, hey, you have to meet these certain standards. This is the basic, uh, uh, the basic 
standard here. Uh, something that had not been done before. The idea that the federal government is existing to make sure to protect its members, protect the population, this is something that the U.S. had never done before. Other nations had. Other nations had. But now the U.S. is doing it. Third thing, the government is intervention in the economy. This is big. Um, even today, the, well, yesterday the federal government announced that they are going to be cutting interest rates to pretty much nothing because of the uh, looming you know, corona threat and all the market going down. This is something the federal government wouldn't do previously. The idea that the federal government is going to directly intervene to do something in the economy is something that wasn't done before. But now it's something the federal government is doing. And why does the federal government do this? This is kind of a ethereal one. The government is now trying to ensure mass consumption. They want to make sure that Americans keep buying stuff which keeps the economy humming. This is really showing that America is now a consumer-based economy. They're not trying to ensure production. They're trying to ensure that goods are purchased. Now, what is the overall significance of the New Deal? Well, I'll tell you right now. The New Deal does not end the Great Depression. All right? Spending for World War II does. All right? Spending for World War II is what ends the Great Depression. Um... Some people might say the war itself ended the Great Depression. That's not true. Wars don't end depressions. Wars generally cause depressions. However, because of the unique nature of World War II, which we're going to talk about later, America was able to pretty much hum production-wise unimpeded. So all that really caused more money to be in the pockets of consumers. But the New Deal is still important because it makes the depression tolerable. It doesn't fix it. It makes it tolerable. If anything else, this does not fundamentally change capitalism in the U.S. Might it might be lowercase s socialist, perhaps, but the U.S. does not go capital, capital, you know, uppercase s socialist or uppercase d Democrat. Uh, woo, Democrat. No, it's Democrat. Communist. Uppercase c, communist. If the U.S. was ever going to make a fundamental shift against capitalism, it would have been the Great Depression. Remember, even Theodore Bilbo, who was like the crazy, radical, far-right person of his time period in Mississippi, is even talking openly about going communist. The New Deal instead restores faith in what was already there. You know, in things like ensuring banks would be steady... They want to make sure that the John Q. consumer, John Q. banker, well, John Q. money holder, is willing to go to their bank and use it again even afterwards. Now, this doesn't happen with everybody. Um, I had a great aunt who lived through the Great Depression, and she never trusted banks ever again. She kept all of her money in old milk jugs. And it was weird, because whenever she died, my dad and I had to clean out her apartment, and it was nothing but, like, Milk jugs filled with money. And milk jugs filled with water. And you didn't know which one you were getting. But there's legitimately, like, at least a hundred milk jugs filled with, like, quarters and wadded up dollar bills. And it really wasn't that much money. <laughs> we were very disappointed when we got it all counted. It was, it was maybe a thousand dollars. We thought it was going to be, like, tons of money. Because you, you see a milk jug full of pennies, you're like, oh my gosh, this is so much money. It, it's really not. But suffice to say, the New Deal makes people believe in what the federal government already has. But that's just in America. And next class, we'll be talking about what's going to happen in other parts of the world, particularly Europe, 
where the depression is even worse. With that being said, uh, that does it for today's lecture. Remember to follow along in the PowerPoints. Uh, expect the next lecture to be up on Thursday. So with that, this is Dr. Tully. Hope you all have a good one.